everybody it's movie geeks united thanks for tuning in um we're going to get to may blu-rays in just a bit but first let's talk about the big movie news that happened in the past week which is the can premiere of once upon a time in hollywood it ended up not picking up any of the uh jury prizes at the end of the festival um uh parasite uh, south korean kind of horror satire did but um, it made a big, big splash. It was the kind of the big Hollywood representation at uh, this year's festival. And the majority of critics are very positive. I think uh, all but two are various – all but two reviews that I've read are various degrees of rave from this is a masterpiece to it's got flaws, but there's so much to relish here that – you can't help but appreciate what's right about it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It and uh, so it looks it looks promising. Yeah, indeed it does. Um, and um, you know, we talked about this before we started taping here about them. They the the thing was considering they shot the thing for six months, and it had a running time of only, only two hours and forty minutes. So it was kind of a shock, but it seems like now they may go back and lengthen it before it comes back out in July for the official release. And so uh yeah, that's gonna be that's curious too. Um, yeah, it's very much it's so. weird how there's there's like four or five actors whose parts were completely removed. Like mm-hmm. James Marsden. Yeah. Uh, James Marsden, Tim Roth, uh there there are a lot of parts that were just cut out altogether. Which is unusual for a Tarantino movie. I, I didn't mm-hmm. think Tarantino was a director known for leaving much on the cutting room floor. Like his scripts were in a shape that everything that's in the script is filmed and that's the movie. Yeah. Generally speaking. And uh, apparently the original cut of this film, uh, it's what he calls his leave everything in, but the kitchen sink cut was four hours and 21 minutes. I read. So that was the yeah. initial, initial thing. And then they whittled that down to two two forty. But now there's, he's saying he's probably going to build that up a little bit more. So uh, that's going to be curious, I think, to see because that may change things, you know, uh, as far in terms of people's perspective of the movie. Uh, it may be, you know, because when you add things back in, that can kind of, you know, enhance your appreciation of it or not. Depends. So I think that's worth mentioning for that as in terms of like a critical analysis of of that. So uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, I understand that everybody tightens, everybody cuts stuff, and tightens stuff, and, and mm-hmm. uh, but um, when you're talking about cutting 
five, I think like a total of five actors were cut out of the movie that are name actors. That seems to be a structural thing. You know, that's not yeah. just, it doesn't seem like it's an incidental, we got to shave these few seconds off, so I'm sorry, we got to sacrifice you. It sounds like mm-hmm. a, a change, change in structure somewhat. But, yeah, that's um, what I was thinking. What's the the main critical thinking is it's it's very it's very different at once from a, a Tarantino movie and and much the same. There's still all the pop culture references. It still delves heavily into cinema lore, um, uh, but it it's so evocative of that time period. It's a love letter to the 1969 Hollywood, and it feels a lot more lazadaisical than other Tarantino movies. It's almost mm-hmm. almost to the point where uh, it feels plotless. That and if there is a plot going on, you're you're not really made aware of the machinations of that plot until the third act kicks in. Mm-hmm. Um which I'm fine because a lot of people's favorite Tarantino movies, Jackie Brown, which he refers to as his hangout movie. And I think this yeah. is an extended version of that, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Good point. Yeah, well, um, and of course there's controversy about the ending that we've been hearing about a little bit. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Just a little bit. We don't want to say too much about it, but... Uh, it, it, it sounds like it may be an inglorious bastards type situation where history may have been rewritten, but we don't know for sure. Everybody's being kind of mum about it, but definitely makes the speculation even stronger uh, from people like us who were just so excited about this movie. So I, I don't know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it'll be something something to see. Um, yeah. So and our buddy uh, Scott Michaels. He he announced last week in his newsletter that he uh, he f- made it official the official announcement that he was a consultant on the film and uh, I noticed that so wanted to mention that uh, that he you remember when we when we met with him yeah and he told us about he told us about that and then he showed us the picture of he and Tarantino oh, yeah. together um, yeah. and they were uh, they were at the the uh, Paul Burns house. Which is that? Yeah, I think that is that. Yeah, and J.C. Bring was had that house where he lived with Sharon, and that's the house he lived in when he was killed in uh, in Sharon's house up in Seattle. So anyway, they're so they're shooting scenes. They're shooting scenes there, and and even the the scenes that you see in the trailer of Emil Hirsch's J.C. Bring uh, training with Bruce Lee that that's at that house. So that's mm-hmm. at least one of the things that they shot there. Uh, but uh, yeah. So we were talk we were talking to him about that, and I said, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I said, you know, what bothers me. It bothers me that they gave uh, Freitag Vrykowski a, a beard and a mustache because he 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 didn't have a beard and a mustache. And uh, yeah. Scott said, Yeah, you're right. They did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, look at those photos. So, it's anyway, true. yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, it's it's very um it's going to be very curious to see how it all unfolds and uh from speaking for myself, I can't wait till July 26th or maybe a couple of days before if I'm lucky enough to get a press screening, who knows. So, hopefully. 
I, I'm hoping. Yeah, really, really hoping. So yeah, well, speaking of press screenings and such, I um, I saw probably the worst film I've seen in a theater this year, which is also getting the best reviews of just about any re- film that's been released this year. Uh, but really, <laughs> somehow I, it was a major disconnect for me, and that was Book Smart. I must admit, uh, I just oh. despised that film. Um, really detested it. Uh, in every way, shape, and form. Um, everybody that all the all the press members who were on the same row that I was on, they were laughing hysterically. They seemed to get it. Uh, it to me, it just felt so calculated, uh, so uh, to the point where it just felt uh, it reeked of desperation. Like they were trying to check off every stereotype, every character, appeal to all the, you know, and it, it's it's basically about these two girls who are graduating high school and they want to, you know, cut loose and go to the big party. And it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's being billed as a super bad for a female version of super bad, which super bad was, eh, mediocre at best, I think. So that's not really a good way to, to sell your movie, if you're asking me. And, uh, of course, this one has Jonah Hill's sister in it, which... You know, uh, I guess there's a you can draw a, a parallel there or something. I don't know, but anyway, I just hated this movie. I have to admit, and uh, I didn't think it was funny. Like I said, I sat there with my arms folded. Uh, not once did I even chuckle. And um, so, anyway, I, I had to report the terrible experience that I had with Booksmart, which is receiving a 98% positive on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I, I I start to question well, myself when I have such a rotten experience with such a well-reviewed movie, and um, um, it uh, in fact I no, I never walk out of a, a screening. That's just my policy. This time I did. This time I walked you did. out. It was yeah, it was that bad. And one of my colleagues asked me. Uh, he was concerned. He thought there was something going on. He said, "Is, is something?" He texted me after. He, he said. Uh, is, is something wrong with your kids or, or Robin, my girlfriend, or uh, is there something going on there? He said, everything okay? Your parents? Your <laughs> it's like, I said, uh, yeah, everything's okay, man. I just hated the movie. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, so I so just, no uh, one, no one is actually, no one is actually, because every time I walk out of a screening, the, the representatives are out there wanting a comment. Yeah. Uh, are they like that there with you too? At your yeah, they they are. Well, our press rep was sitting uh, in the front, and I didn't want to disturb him. So what I did was I, I have his uh, contact information. So I just uh, messaged him afterwards and told him what a terrible experience I had, and uh, left it at that. So, um, yeah, it was just, uh, and, and you know, it makes me wonder. I mean, I, am I this? I wonder if I'm out of touch or why am I having such a bad experience. But then I noticed a couple of audience members walked out too, the general audience that had, you know, won tickets or whatever for the for the screening. That I saw at least a half a dozen walkouts. So, you know, it wasn't just me. Um but anyway, yeah. so Book Smart, which is getting rave reviews, did not uh was not a hit with me for whatever reason. So <laughs> Interesting. Well I've spent a lot of time watching some old stuff of uh I watched a lot of early Hitchcock. I watched stuff like Sabotage and The Lady Vanishes and The Lodger and um mm-hmm. and uh really enjoyed Sabotage. Yeah. Uh, and I saw uh, there was a Pacino um 
Pacino spent a lot of years directing a new movie called Salome based on the Oscar Wilde one mm-hmm. act. And then he, like he did with Looking for Richard, he made a documentary about the making of the movie version that he was making of Salome. Uh, and that's uh, actually available to buy on Amazon, to rent on Amazon. And so I did that, mm-hmm. and I watched it, and it was fine. But it was almost, it was nice seeing Pacino again working with actors and stuff in the documentary sure, that he made. Yeah. But it still didn't bring home, you know, what appealed to you about making this movie until I watched the actual movie he made of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then I understood. So it really does deserve to be seen as a double feature. Uh, and Jessica Chastain, he he kind of discovered her um, when he made this movie, mm-hmm. and uh, she is fantastic in it. She's remarkable. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and it's, it does have a really good cast. But um, I would. I would recommend watching both versions, but uh, it's interesting as I was watching it because our fourth or fifth show uh, back in 2007 was a tribute to Al Pacino, and we had all this cast on from Salam, Salome, which was then called Salam, Salamabe. This was so. This was 12 years ago that this thing was shot, and he spent mm-hmm. years and years tinkering with it, and he never released it until just recently. Um, so that was interesting. And I always regretted that show too, because I know for a fact that Jessica Chastain called in during that show and I was ready to go to the next guest. We were on a time schedule, so I didn't, I couldn't pick up the line because she called yeah. in late and I just, I beat myself up about that. I said, just what would have been the harm? Just pick up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, uh, wow. Yeah. You didn't know she was but, uh, on her way I, up. But. Yeah, but I did see one new movie that is now available on demand and very limited mm-hmm. theatrical release, which I think is one of the best of the year. So it's the opposite of what you felt about Booksmart. Um, and that's called Charlie Says. Speaking of Once okay. Upon a Time in Hollywood and the whole Manson thing, um, mm-hmm. this movie is not about Manson, even though Manson's in it. He's played by... Whoever plays Doctor Who, Matt Smith, I, I don't know Doctor yeah. Who. I I think he did a great job as Manson, but Manson's really not the the draw of the film. It's the girls, the main girls that committed the murders, and they're imprisoned and going through therapy sessions to to um, determine what led them to commit those crimes. Now that sounds like a big oh god that sounds intolerable, but it's really not. I I personally have not liked any Manson movies, uh, even Helter Skelter, in either of its forms. Um, the the original or re, the remake I I just found those watchable. I didn't think they were necessarily very good. This is the first really truly good. Manson movie I've ever seen, and it's it's not about Manson. I don't want to give that impression, though you do see the sway he held over his followers. So if you are one of those conspiracy-minded people that think that Helter Skelter, that whole theory is bullshit, you'll probably reject it, but because it doesn't stray far from the accepted narrative of what happened. But yeah. from a humanistic level, uh, I felt for the first time that I understood the process of indoctrination. And that's really what that's about. And it could be about 
the Manson girls or to another degree, it can be about someone in a bad marriage that refuses to leave the person that beats them or what have you. Mm -hmm. There's this, this period of indoctrination and the movie is also about the period of breaking them of that. So I thought it was particularly uh, um, eye-opening in that respect and also very brave because the one thing that you don't see in movies about the Manson family, which are always geared towards, hey, let's be creepy and horrific and that kind of thing, is a sense of empathy. That's a brave thing, but I think it's something that movies are uniquely suited to present to us, the need mm-hmm. for empathy, the need to understand. Absolutely. Um, not, yeah. to ex- not, to ex- not to excuse, but to understand. And mm-hmm. it's a female-led movie. It's directed by Mary Herron, who's best known for Pet Cemetery, that original version. And it leaves on a really haunting note, a, a kind of what might have been note, where one follower had a chance to leave and her life would have been totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, it's about these women coming to terms with what they did. Um, a lot of people think that's distasteful. I think making a Manson movie and trying to make it uh, like a teenage slasher flick is offensive. I don't think this version of that is offensive. So I would highly right. recommend it. Very interesting. Well, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to make a special point to seek that one out, based on your recommendation. Yeah, it was on my radar, but I, you know, I was on the fence because there's so many, like you said, uh, movies that are tying into the Manson gang and Sharon Tate and all that right now, and it's hard to really tell which one is worth your, which ones are worth your time and not. But uh, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, this one's of quality. Jenna Maslin, I think Jenna Maslin, New York Times, she she raved about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then on the flip side of the coin, Rex Reed, who's got to be the smarmiest. See, he's just in it to be smarmy, right? He's yeah, I think he's so. Like a he's like a villain in a Batman movie, or like the Penguin or something. Or he's like yeah. the stereotypical mustache twirling. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say he's one step away from the mustache twirling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You read my mind, yeah. dude. Yeah. But anyway, exactly. But, uh, but please check it out, and then let me know what you think of it at MovieGeeksUnited at Yahoo.com. And then I saw mm-hmm. uh, Winter Kills, because I'd never seen it. We've talked about it over the years, and I've never seen it. Um, so I, I haven't, watched but I've it never today. seen it. Really? Yeah? What a whack job movie. Wacky. Interesting. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a interesting. It's like three out of five stars for me. It's, mm-hmm. it's just... Uh, yeah, it's kind of bold and surreal, and it's just wacky. It's just an odd, odd movie. Hmm. Go, it goes for it, huh? Wow. It really does. Yeah, and the behind-the-scenes anecdotes about that movie are really interesting mm-hmm. because they they were they were closed down twice because uh, the financing fell through in the middle of shooting. So they came up with an idea to shoot another movie overseas, Jeff Bridges and the mm-hmm. director. So they did that, and that gave them enough money to finish Winter Kills two years later. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the two of the uh, producers of the film, one was shot in the head by a member of the mafia. The other one's Jeez. prison for 40 years. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's problematic. But uh, uh, Houston is uh, just delectably bad. Uh, not not a bad performance, just a, a bad moral character right. in the movie. Uh, that's fun enough to watch it. 
Very good. Well, uh, yeah, I have that one sitting around here. It's been sitting here for years, and like I said, based on our conversations here on the show about it, I, it's one of those that I, you know, kept saying, well, I'll get to that one day, and one day hasn't arrived yet. So I, yeah. yeah. Well, let's. Okay. It's got a nice cast: just, Jeff Bridges and John Houston and um, mm-hmm. uh, Anthony Perkins, and then uh, Elizabeth Taylor pops up, and then yeah. you know. Sterling Hayden thumbs up. Wow. Yeah. And this was a first time director, I think, like an untested guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he got a hell of a a cast together for it because it's very provocative material, especially in 1979. It's it's such a thinly veiled, almost satirical take on the Kennedy assassination, Mm -hmm. which was a dangerous, dangerous hot potato back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, I'll uh, maybe I need to make that a priority then. Okay. Again, good to know. Yeah. But see, Charlie says first. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like the I'm, much I'm better inter- option. I'm interested of the two. in what you think. Yeah, I'll they'll do it. I will definitely do it. Well, okay, right. Blu-rays. Blu-rays. Yeah, Blu-rays. we'll we'll jump right in. Um, and we'll start with May sixth. For our monthly Blu-ray report, and we're going to go with um, this is from a company called Ronin Flicks. It's called it's just before dawn, the 1981 horror film, which has quite a cult following. Um, this is um, actually it's a co-release between Ronin Flicks and Code Red. This is uh, one of those camper in the woods being stalked by a psycho, but it's a l- little bit better than the average type of film that was made uh, in the early 80s. It's, it's a little smarter. A little more suspenseful. I actually think it's pretty good, too. It's directed by Jeff Lieberman, who um, also directed Squirm, the film about the uh, the attack of the earthworms from 1976, <laughs> the electrified earthworms. But that's actually a good movie. I like Squirm as well. And, uh, and he also did Blue Sunshine, which is an interesting horror film about um, these college kids from the 60s who did LSD and turns out the LSD caused them to become a murderous psychopaths 10 years after they they did the, the drugs. So he was an interesting director and uh, this was his third film I think but it presents the film in two different cuts uh, George Kennedy's in it and Chris Lemon and Greg Henry of many De Palma films um, so you know uh, just before dawn is out there in two different cuts and extended and the regular version of the film um for anybody who hasn't seen it or is a fan and uh so what's the deal with two sure? different cuts why why are there uh, two different cuts well i think this is a recently unearthed longer cut of the film is what it is uh they mm, they thought okay. it was lost and i think it's the preferred cut that Jeffrey Lieberman, the director, I think he preferred it, but he was forced to do some trims uh, due to uh, um, the powers that be. I think I think that's the story. Uh, but anyway, this so is, the, supposedly... is, the, is the discovered cut redone, like re- remastered in some way. I think it is. Uh, that's the that's what it's getting billed as. I didn't get a review copy of this one because Code Red doesn't. Okay. N- they normally don't do review copies of their titles, unfortunately. But uh, but I'm probably going to reach out and pick up a copy of this one actually because uh, I do. Now like is this that. the video dis- distributor who's owned by Mountain Dew? Code Red. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's good. Yeah. Uh, no. No, they are not. Affiliated with the Pepsi Corporation, but because uh, <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of times when you watch those uh, 
found lost footage and we finally recovered it and they release it. And it's a case with Winter Kills too, because they mm-hmm. re-edited it uh, with a yeah. kept on ending. It looks like you're looking at it through a glass of milk. It's <laughs> yeah, that's true. That does happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the downside of that stuff. You're exactly right. Um, but on May 7th, there were a couple of interesting uh, 4K releases, uh, one of which I heard is really a terrific presentation of this film. Uh, don't If we have people who are fans of it, uh, Black Hawk Down from 2001. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was okay. It was a fine movie. You know, I didn't, didn't love it, didn't hate it when it came out, but uh, supposedly this is a terrific uh, presentation and a major, major substantial upgrade from the Blu-ray. I'm hearing the reviews are pretty pretty darn good on this one so uh just want to mention that and um the first 4k title from a, a boutique label actually was released on may 7th as well and this is an interesting uh title for a boutique label to release as a 4k and it was hannibal from 2001 as well yeah. um, uh unfortunately it did not sell very well is what I'm understanding, and so it was a Kino Lorber release, and I'm understanding that their second 4K title, which I'm not sure what it was, has now been canceled. So they may not be this may have been a failed experiment. I'm sorry to say, but um, but anyway, uh, Hannibal was released in 4K with a new transfer. I don't think anybody's crazy about that movie. Yeah, I don't I either. Just don't... Uh, it's. I don't uh, think it has a rabid think... fan base. Hannibal, uh, it, it's okay. Yeah, it is. But any interest, any any interest in Hannibal, really just goes back to Silence of the Lambs. It's not yes, Hannibal exactly. itself. No, not at all. And I feel the same way. I'm. I, I didn't hate it as much as a lot of people just piled on it when it came out and just really just gave it a hard time. I I didn't think it was. I mean, it was in, mildly enjoyable. I thought, and it was great to see Anthony Hopkins back as that character. But uh, you know, it it had its. It definitely had some uh, some some flaws, but uh, not not a terrible film, but not anything that I felt a an incredible need to go back and revisit, like you're saying. So yeah, it's an, well, it's an odd title for them to pick. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe they got it. Maybe they got it cheap or something. I, I'm not sure. But um, uh, it's interesting how you've mentioned four movies, and two of them are Ridley Scott movies. I know that's true. Yeah, that is very, very true. That is. I just now thought. Yeah, you. That, that's interesting. Uh, so, Backdraft from 1991 uh, is another 4K release, the Ron Howard film. So that's been uh, issued and upgraded to 4K. And uh, and then we'll move over to uh, Arrow. The Arrow label has released the 1972 western, The Grand Duel, uh, starring Lee Van Cleef. Mm. And this has uh, quite a number of extras on it for fans who are uh, people who are fans of those um, spaghetti westerns, I guess you'd say. Uh, this one's directed by Giancarlo Santi, and um, you know, new new uh, film elements were used in this restoration. And uh, like I said, some some featurettes, commentaries, and all that stuff. So uh, documentaries, so, uh, the the Grand Duel from 1972, and uh, another. Kino release is Broken Flowers from 2005 with Bill Murray, Jeffrey Wright, oh, Sharon yeah. Stone, and yeah, Jeffrey uh, Jim Jarmusch. That's right, yeah. So, what was your uh, what was your take on that initially? I'm curious. I I was fine with it. It uh, it seemed like a, 
lost in translation uh, brought Bill Murray kind of back to the forefront as a potential dramatic actor. Yeah. In a way that something like River, Razor's Edge never did. Um, but it was a very minimal perform minimal performance. Uh, yeah. And I think Broken Flower Broken Flowers is in the same vein, but it it doesn't have the central relationship that kind of propelled Lost in Translation. So Broken Flowers feels kind of eh, it's like a lazy little movie. It does to me. It seemed very slight. Is the word that comes to mind? Slight. I just, That's it. Yeah, I saw it and I was yeah, again didn't really hate it, but it was just so um, leisurely paced, I guess, and it just uh, so um, it was so relaxed to the point of uh, almost uh, putting me to sleep. So uh, it was <laughs> very relaxed. Um, but uh, a, a Criterion release I want to mention is The Heiress from 1949. I did not get a review copy of this, although I hear it's a terrific movie with Olivia de Havilland as uh, the daughter of a wealthy New York doctor who gets calls from a uh, uh, spendthrift, the town spendthrift, and she becomes possessed by the promise of romance. And um, she's not sure if it's her father behind all this or if the guy uh, or if the guy is genuinely in love with her and it's putting her uh, uh testing her uh psychology i guess you would say so anyway uh it's supposedly a really really well done movie directed by william wyler the heiress from 1949 and a nice batch of extras to go along that with that it's a criterion and um, so we're, we'll move along to another keynote release, The Nightcomers, starring Marlon, Marlon Brando in mm. 1971. It's uh, another one of his uh, – uh, one of the things that he was doing around the time he got cast in The Godfather, which kind of gives you an idea where his career was at that time. But um, anyway, another – this is another keynote release, The Man Who Haunted Himself. Starring Roger Moore and directed by Basil Dearden. That's from 1970. And that was Roger Moore just a few years before he became 007, of course. And we have the Zero Mostel Gene Wilder film, Rhinoceros, from 1974. Another Kino release. Huh. So, uh, I didn't know they worked uh, together again. I did not either until this popped up. Did not get a review copy of this one, but... Um, uh, fairly well reviewed, I think, and not familiar with the director Tom O'Horgan, but has an interesting cast and has Joe Silver and Karen Black, and uh, again Gene Wilder, Zero Mostel, so maybe worth seeking out. So uh, that was, um, like I said, Rhinoceros from 1974. Karen Black, man, I I can't help but every time I think of Karen Black, I think about the interview that Aaron did with her for us. Oh yeah. And this was like this was like a year before she died. But mm-hmm. uh, man, it was brutal. It's brutal. Every single question that Aaron asked, Karen Black <laughs> behaved as though he was the, the dumbest son of a bitch ever for asking <laughs> <laughs> such a question. It was the questions were not uh uh unreasonable. Uh but man, she was in a mood that day. Yeah, I remember her being quite testy when I listened to that interview after you guys did it. Yeah, I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, 
Yeah, she she was. Uh... And I don't mind saying, there there were two true assholes that I've interviewed mm-hmm. over the past twelve years. I think ninety nine point nine percent of everyone has been so great, but man, um, there was one guy, a director of this terrible uh, John Hinckley Jr. movie called Chapter Twenty Seven. I remember that. The one that Jared Leto uh, played uh, Hinckley. Yes. Um, Anyway, I forget what the director's name was, but he was incredibly rude. And then uh, Candy Clark, when we brought her on for the David Bowie um, tribute, she was awful. Mm. I mean, uh, I'm sure she's a lovely person otherwise, but in that interview, I I, I was ready to hang up. I actually – she was so – sarcastic and smarmy to me I said well we'll just not do this and she said no no I'm here let's do it yeah I mean I was mm. ready to stand there because I don't have time for that bullshit yeah exactly <laughs> wow but anyway I'm not afraid mm. to out them <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey they earned it right they earned their stripes so uh yeah wow well a couple other uh Let's see. These are May seventh releases, and um, I think that pretty much covers everything for May seventh. We'll just move along to May tenth, and there was a documentary on Randy Bachman of Bachman Turner Overdrive and um, the Guess Who, of course, and it's called Bachman, and it's it's a recent movie, just came out last year, and uh, it's uh, getting fairly good reviews. So anybody who's a fan of classic rock and especially of the 60s and 70s variety. This documentary, uh, documentary on Randy Bachman might be worth seeking out. And that's from uh, the company. The distributor is FilmRise. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to, to mention that. And the 1998 Godzilla has been released in 4K. That was released on May 14th. Uh, I, well, I'm pretty sure they're releasing that as, uh, as a tie-in to the new Godzilla that's coming up uh, it's going to be released on May the the thirty first. So I'm sure that's now which what Godzilla is this that just got released this on is Blu-ray? The, This is the Ferris Bueller uh, Godzilla. So uh, <laughs> Ferris, Ferris Bueller meets Godzilla. So <laughs> that's great. I've never heard it regard, or, uh, described as that was. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're Man, talking about I the do Magic remember Brothers, though. Godzilla. Yeah, I do remember that that teaser trailer was great. Everybody was so excited about that because it was that old guy fishing on the bridge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're like, oh, that looks really cool. And it did not take long once once we actually saw the movie for that those hopes to totally deflate. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Although, and and it is not a good movie, but I will say that I do prefer it to the 2014 when they came out because. You know, even though it had its flaws, at least you freaking saw Godzilla, which you did not yeah. in the 2014 movie. I think he got maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes of screen time or something like that. It was a ridiculously low amount when I added it all up. And I thought, you know, for all of its flaws, the 98 Godzilla movie, at least they showed Godzilla, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a big Godzilla aficionado. Um I know Jerry. I know Jerry is, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go see the next one in a couple of days, and then I, you know, I saw the 2014. I saw the Roland Emmerich, and then I saw the very first one, mm-hmm. the Japanese one from the 50s. Yeah, uh, that, that's it. That's all I've seen. Yeah. 
I uh, yeah. And if you I can't am, make I'll... a better, if you can't make a better version of something than the one that was made the first time out in 1954 or whenever it was, like what what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Why are you that's an... why are you continuing to go back to the well? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Excellent point. I feel the same way. But um, yeah. So. Anyway, uh, Field of Dreams has been issued in a 4K uh, 30th anniversary edition, or um, so they've gotten the uh, the 4K upgrade. So anybody who's mm. a fan of Field of Dreams, I want to mention that. And then the uh, Shout Factory has issued as part of their Shout Select line the 1942 film noir This Gun for Hire with Veronica Lake and Robert Preston. Early mm. appearance of Robert Preston there, um, but. Anyway, and a couple of criteria. You know what? A story I heard about Robert Preston. No, what's that? Um, I'm just here to provide little asides to all the movies you're talking about. And they're not necessarily asides about the actual movie. But I I heard one thing about Robert Preston years ago when we did our – Robert Preston was in The Last Starfighter, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah. The female, Catherine – forget her name. Catherine Catherine Stewart, I believe. Right, Catherine Stewart. She, she, yeah. yeah, she did our anniversary show in that movie, and she said Robert Preston was the nicest guy, and oh. he he smelled so good. So, when somebody tells you this kind of thing, it's for whatever reason locked in your memory banks. So, anytime yeah. anyone brings up Robert Preston, I always think, man, he smelled really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Oh, that's funny. It's an interesting detail, though. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the 1997 film, Michael Haneke's Funny Games, and this is the original, the original 1997 uh, German version. Mm. And of course, it was remade later with, uh, oh, uh, I forget who was in that. Who who was it? Michael that? Pitt. <laughs> to, Michael that's, Pitt. That's right. Naomi Watts. That's Naomi now did Hanukkah, did, and Hanukkah did the American remake too, that, that version too, didn't he? He did, yes, yes. Yeah, the, huh. this movie clearly divided people. Some people thought it was just too brutal, and they really just didn't uh, enjoy it much. I enjoyed both versions actually. I mean, I can't say it's the kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing you want to say you love, uh, but because <laughs> it is a pretty. Uh, uh, it, it's definitely a, on the downer side of things, but you know it's very, um, it's never boring, and uh, I don't know it's, yeah. as far as psychological thrillers go, it uh, it delivers the goods, uh, both versions. I think of, it's uh, designed to be divisive. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's one of those yeah. movies where if it, if it isn't divisive, it didn't do its job. Yeah, and he's a divisive guy. We all know that, so. He's, he's, as a director, he he has a tendency to do that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's interesting new, though. It's interesting though. Those those foreign filmmakers that remake do American remakes of their own films. And I just last month I just saw an example of that with The Vanishing, because I'd always seen the American remake. I'd never seen the original from Norway, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and uh, his original was acclaimed, rightfully so. And then he went back and he made an American remake with Kiefer Sutherland and Jeff Bridges. And he, mm-hmm. unlike Annika, he completely sold it out at the end. Uh. Um, you know, Americanized it to a point where it took it took all the bite and and the and the horror and suspense out of it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's terrible when they do, and they sometimes do that. You know, they will uh, they will cave to their worst instincts. It's almost like they're overreaching to please American audiences or something. I don't know. Instead of being yeah. true to their true to their game, maybe that makes sense. So, but there's yeah. some American versions that do it right. I mean, I that's I, true. You know, speaking speaking of Norway, I don't know. Is is insomnia Swedish? Yes. Uh, yes. The original, I thought Chris Nolan's Americanized version of it was Americanized in the very best way. I, oh yeah. I, I thought I thought it played like a, a classic cop thriller mm-hmm. uh, with that night with that nice twist of environment. And so you know, I, I don't poo-poo the practice totally, but no. I'm right there with you. I mean, you know, sometimes they do get it right, and that is an excellent example. You're correct in that. Uh, yeah, definitely. In many ways, so, that's still my favorite Nolan movie. <laughs> Actually, oh, it's, it's definitely funny. my favorite Nolan movie. It's the one I responded the strongest to. Period, but hands down. I, I, I'll I'll go to bat for that one anytime. Absolutely. And it's classic probably, storytelling. I mean, there's yeah. there's no like. Let's switch timelines, like three different planes of reality and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. very simple, structured, disciplined storytelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that, and I, uh, I I respond strongly to that. And probably right behind that would be The Prestige, which I thought is also good storytelling that he mm. you know, as far as his films. So, uh, you know, love both of those. So another Criterion release that uh, I got excited about, and didn't get a review copy of this one, but uh, again, I'm going to reach out and pick up a copy of it, is uh, House of Games from 1987, uh, written and directed by David Mamet, yes, uh, starring Joe Montagna and Lindsey Krause and the late J.T. Walsh, and uh, yeah, and Ricky Jay, I think, appeared in that, the magician, the late, great Ricky Jay, I think that's... That's where one of the uh, his appearance in that I think led to him being cast in the P.T. Anderson films later. So <clears throat> yeah, that's a great film. This is new new transfer, terrific batch of extras. You know, lots of documentaries and commentaries and stuff. So uh, want to recommend House of Games if you're a fan of that Mammoth. Was his first, that was his first time directing, right? David yeah, Mammoth was, directing yeah. a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you prefer that or Heist? Uh, probably House of Games. I'm a real big fan of it myself. I mean, I like Heist. It's good, but uh, House of Games is really uh, – and I just think Lindsey Krause is so good in it, and, you know, I just – I don't know. I respond strongly to yeah. it. Yeah, but – Okay. Manhattan yeah, should have gone off – gone out with with Heist. But, yeah, that it's is the – welcome to Mooseport. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Uh, the 1948 film, The Big Clock, starring Ray Milland and Charles Lawton, has been issued as an Arrow What's Academy. that title again? Uh, the Big Clock. <laughs> the Big Clock. Oh, clock. Okay. Clock. Let's uh, <laughs> clarify that. Yeah, exactly. So, no, this is uh, Ray Milland, Charles Lawton, Marina Sullivan, Elsa Lanchester, Harry Morgan. What a nice cast, right? Oh. And produced by John Farrow, the father of Mia Farrow, and directed by John Farrow. Um, yeah, it's a crime, it's a crime thriller, a career-oriented magazine editor finding himself on the run when he discovers his boss is framing him for murder. So, um, yeah, it's and it's considered to be a classic of its type. Uh, yeah. Always well has uh, audio commentary by Adrian Martin, a um, couple of featurettes, and uh, a 1948 radio broadcast of 
the story starring Ray Meland and trailers and image gallery and all that stuff. So anyway, I just want to mention the Arrow Academy release of The Big Clock. Clock. <laughs> I just I just yeah. They should make, you know, how that you we talk about the uh nuclear age science fiction horror films where everything gets bigger like a certain insect or animal gets huge and they attack it and everything. They should yeah. do that with a chicken or a rooster or something and give it the movie the name the big cock. <laughs> the, the big cock. The big cock is coming to get you. <laughs> oh wow, that would be good. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I wonder they, why somebody like uh, whoever that Larry, uh, whoever that Schlockmeister producer is that produces all the uh, the trauma stuff. What's his name? Uh, oh, Lloyd Kaufman. Lloyd Kaufman. Lloyd. I wonder why he never did something like that. Yeah, I know. Really, or Roger Corman even maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would have been – yeah, it seems like that would be right in their wheelhouse. You're exactly right. So uh, the the 2001 film, Ghost of Mars, one of John Carpenter's final films uh, as as at this point anyway, uh, not a – speaking of not a good way to go out on – you know, when you're talking about uh, yeah. Gene Hackman going out on a low note, uh, this is kind of a way to go out on a low, a low note as well, and this is – this was previously issued by Twilight Time, went out of print very quickly because it does have its fans. Um, Mill Creek Entertainment has put it out, and you can get it for nine bucks now. So for anybody wow. who wants Ghost of Mars, you can get it pretty cheaply. Yeah, um, also, and this is one that uh, that that has been going for you know I don't know thirty forty bucks overseas, but now you can get it for nine bucks here. The Eyes of Laura Mars from nineteen seventy eight. Sorry, huh, I just Lee watched Jones. that. I just yeah. watched that last week. It was on Amazon Prime, so I checked it out because I'd never seen it before. It's yeah. interesting. And, and written by John Carpenter, so there is a tie in there. Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, it ties to it all ties together. But yeah, it's a fine uh, movie. I, it's it, it's one of those movies where it's fine, but uh, you wonder what, what was up with Pauline Kael's rave of that movie. Yeah, I I didn't necessarily find it. Uh, you know. Rave worthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I well, I think part of the problem with that movie, from what I understand, is that John Carpenter pinned the script, and the script was pretty strong. Uh, it sold pretty quickly, I think. And this is when he was trying to make a name for himself uh, pre-Halloween, and um, you know, the it it, it was making the rounds in, uh, around Hollywood, and it was bought up by I think John Peters, who was you know famously Barbara Streisand's boyfriend at the time. And I think he made mandates as to what he he kind of retooled the movie for his own uh, sensibilities, which weren't always the best. And I think that's why it's not quite as good as it could have been, from what I understand, uh, based on what I've read. So, um, but anyway, well, that might and it be does the case. Have... That might be the case. But for anyone that likes New York City, it's a good time vault movie of New York City because they have some great scenes in there of her. Staging uh, kind of fashion photography settings on the New York streets. Oh yeah, in the late seventies, it, it's very it's it's a very good capsule of that time in that city. It sure is, yeah, and it uh, it does have a title song by um, by Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, which actually managed to chart on um, on the top forty charts. I think it got in the somewhere in the tw- yeah. in the twenties, you know, mid twenties. Prisoner, I think is the name of the song. 
But anyway, uh, Kino Lorber has released Link. Uh, that's the, the monkey. The movie, yeah, the monkey movie about the uh, the monstrous monkey on the loose. Elizabeth Shue, Terrence Stamp. Uh, yeah, uh, zoology student tries uh, out a smart. Uh, tries to outsmart a murderous and super intelligent orangutan uh, to disastrous results. Directed by Richard Franklin, by the way, who uh, also directed Road Games and Psycho 2. Uh, the yeah. Little Franklin. So, yeah. So, yeah. Really uh, here's an Elizabeth Shue movie. Uh, has The Trigger Effect ever been released on Blu ray? I don't know if it has. I'm not sure that it has. Seems like I might have come across that title, but I'm not. I can't say for sure. Yeah, I think it's like David Kep's directorial debut or something. Um, the, the famous screenwriter. Yeah. Tried his hand at directing. I think that was his first one. Yeah, I remember. Tom McLaughlin. I remember. Was in it. I, remember I do remember it. Yeah, I remember it being uh, not not bad, not bad. So uh, yeah, well, according according to what I'm seeing here, yeah, it is. It's on a double feature with a body count, so you can get the uh, body two, two for the price of one body count and the trigger effect. So huh, yeah, interesting. I you think sure that was can. actually Elizabeth Shue's follow follow up to Leaving Las Vegas. I think yeah, that's I think so. Probably the the only kind of spotlight it had on it for, for that. Yeah, reason. exactly. So, uh, well, I'll move right along to uh, the 1997 film Princess Mononoke, which is considered to be a classic. Uh, this is, of course, from Hayao Miyazaki, the famous Japanese animation director. And what makes this so special is it's coming out in a new edition that features an exclusive 40-page book and a CD soundtrack. This is from Shout Factory and Studio Ghibli, or Ghibli rather. I'm sorry, and G Kids. It's a very, very nice uh, slipcase edition. I did get a review copy of this. It's beautiful uh, to behold, and it's uh, just a really, really nice collector's edition of Princess Mononoke. So if anybody is a fan of that movie, and it is a very, very good animated film, I just wanted to mention uh, to tell people this is a limited edition and well worth picking up if you're a fan. So anyway, uh, so we'll move along to the 1977 film The Chosen. That's from Shout Factory. Mm. Uh, it's Kirk Douglas, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, Kirk Douglas, and uh, directed by Alberto Di Martino, an executive in charge of a Middle Eastern nuclear plant, discovers his son is the Antichrist and sets out to stop him from using <laughs> the nuclear power to wipe out mankind. Uh, Anthony Quayle is also in this. So, did not get a review copy of this one. Uh, have not seen it. But um, a good good Marconi score. Okay, yeah. Well, that makes it worth seeing, I guess. Yeah, because um, yeah, those Marconi scores can can elevate even the worst movies. So anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. So the 1970 film, uh, The Landlord, has finally been issued by Kino Lorber. Uh, that's that's great because um, uh, it's the only it was the main holdout of all of the. Hal Ashby titles of his catalog from the 70s. It was the only film that, that had not been issued in high-def format, and uh, they did a, a 2K restoration of it, and uh, this was notoriously hard to, to to get a copy of, even on DVD. You had to, I think it was one of those direct, um, one of those deals where they pressed it directly uh, if you, it wasn't ever commercially pressed. 
But um, mm. finally, the landlord has been issued with a new audio commentary and all that. So just wanted to throw that out there for people uh, who might be uh, wanting to, who are Hal Ashby completists. And um, another Kino Lorber issue, uh, release rather, is the 1987 film. The Bedroom Window, directed by Curtis Hansen and starring Steve Gutenberg, Elizabeth McGovern, and Isabel Huppert. And, um, you know, this was filmed in my own backyard, Wilmington, North Carolina, when Dino De Laurentiis had his studio down there. Um, yeah, it's, it's a thriller, uh, <coughs> of the Curtis Hansen variety, of, you know, of the Curtis Hansen variety. You know, this is Curtis Hansen, of course, we who directed Hand That Rocks the Cradle in L.A. Confidential. And so if you're a fan of his stuff, uh, I would recommend it, The Bedroom Window. Uh, it's worth uh, seeking out. Uh, Wilmington, so did they shoot Blue Velvet near you? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Uh, a title we're getting to, by the way. So, yeah, it was shot uh, about Oh, that's true. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, it's shot shot maybe two hours from where I live, three hours at the most. So yeah, I know I'm very familiar. Yeah, it was another De Laurentiis Entertainment Group release, of course. So. And do you avoid uh, that part of town? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I've I've only driven through there. I've never actually stopped. I should take the time to stop and visit those locations. That would be that'd yeah, be that fun, would be I neat. Think. Be a good day trip. Yeah. yeah. So the Neil Simon film, The Prisoner of Second Avenue from 1975, starring Jack Lemmon and Anne Bancroft, has been released uh, as a Warner Archive title. So, um, you know, if you're a fan of Neil Simon, I, this is based on his play. It's it's a, it's a pretty pretty good movie, I would say. And directed by um, uh, Melvin Frank, featuring music by Marvin Hamlish. So... Anyway, just wanted to mention that The Prisoner of Second Avenue has been issued by Warner Archive and features a a segment from the Dinosaur TV show with Anne Bancroft and a gag reel and a vintage featurette, The Making of the Prisoner of Second Avenue. So if you're a fan of the every, Neil Simon every, stuff. Every DVD needs to come with a segment of a Dinosaur show. <laughs> I, I know, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So we'll um, we'll move right along to let's see May 21st. We're moving moving at a pretty good clip now. Earthquake has been issued in a collector's edition, part of the Shout Select line. The 1974 disaster film features two cuts. You have the original theatrical cut and the made-for-television version, which has been uh, uh, supposedly remastered with a 2K um, scan. And it's never been issued in that type of quality. Now, I've always been told that I don't. I've seen it. It's been a long time since I've seen the TV cut. Uh, there was actually some footage that was shot starring Deborah Lee Scott that wasn't uh, intended to be in the original film. They shot it just for the television version. So uh, mm. you know, it's um. Well, that's it, a good it, ego boost to her. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not good enough for film, but uh, we'll we'll save you for the TV version. Yeah, we'll put you in the, um, the, the TV cut. But yeah, some of the deleted so, scenes did make so it. So it was made. The, it was made longer for what, like a two night? Was it like a two night? Yeah, event on so TV? they could sell more advertising. Yeah, that's that's what it was all about. Because the more you the more you can pad it out, the more advertising dollars you could get. And so it's all about the ad revenue. So that's what they did. Um, but for anybody who's an earthquake completist, uh, and it does have some interesting featurettes on here about the. You know the the making of the film, and um, it's just good to see a special edition. It's not a terrific film, but 
it does have its moments. Uh, of course, it has the infamous casting of Ava Gardner, who was 51 at the time she made the movie. She plays the daughter of Lauren Green, who's 59 in the in real life. So there's an eight-year age difference. That's always been yeah. quite interesting. But yeah. uh, well, he was an he was an active he was an active child. Uh, uh yeah. Do, I would so say do so. you do you put do you put earthquake uh, airport earthquake the swarm? Where where do you oh, place wow. these? Among the Irwin Allen disaster movies. Type of thing. It's just, yeah, I don't yeah. know. Well, yeah, I'm a huge fan of The Towering Inferno, which I think is a good Towering movie. Towering Inferno, re- right. Yeah, that's my favorite. And I think it's a good movie. I think it's very well made. I watched it again about two years ago, I think, and it holds up. I mean, it's a very uh, – the special effects look good. They don't look dated. Uh, there's a lot of good character development. There's a lot of suspense, a lot of good you know, action and – I don't know. I, I just think it's a well-made movie, and Poseidon Adventure is, is, is right there behind it. Um, love both of those, but then when you get past those, the quality kind of deteriorates, and, you know, I have a guilty pleasure uh, kind of thing going on for Airport 75. It's Speaking of Karen Black, you know, uh, she's in that. Of course, she's the stewardess who has to land the plane when the pilots are killed. Um, but, mm-hmm. you, you know, it, uh, it, it does have the... Uh, uh, Helen Reddy as the singing nun in that one, you know. So there's some, some, <laughs> a few unintentional laughs going on. And it was Gloria Swanson's final film too, but uh, yeah, and she plays herself in that. So and you have Jerry Stiller and Norman Fell and um, Conrad Janis oh. as three best friends on the plane sitting together. That's always <laughs> that's fun to watch those three actors together. Uh, yeah, so you know, but yeah, and then after that, it kind of the quality just really precipitously falls off. The swarm is pretty bad, I have to admit. Although it's uh, it's good for a few laughs, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. So, oh well, we have the Roman Polanski film Bitter Moon from 1992. That's being issued by Kino Lorber with Peter Coyote, Hugh Grant, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, I I remember watching that movie when it was first released on DVD <clears throat> years ago, mm-hmm. and digging it. But I haven't watched it again in you know thirty years since. But uh, I remember it being, uh, you know, kinky and perverse. Oh yeah. And, uh, especially with, and when you consider it's it's odd. It's odd to consider that. Hugh Grant <clears throat> worked with Roman Polanski. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I know, really. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite a pairing. <laughs> it sure is. This is very true. Yeah, so anyway, it's, uh, you know, if you're Roman Polanski completist, well, there you go. Uh, we have the 1982 film, The Seduction. You remember uh, when they were trying to make a movie star out of Morgan Freeman, and this was their chance to try it uh this uh, didn't do very didn't did not do very well not really because of any no through no fault of morgan freeman i don't think she's really the the problem with this film it's just a bad movie but <laughs> nevertheless it does have its morgan uh, freeman i mean not morgan freeman morgan fairchild sorry morgan fairchild <laughs> sorry let's correct that i get the two confused all the time <laughs> yeah morgan, i don't know why i'd say i'm looking at another title that has morgan freeman in it and that's what's throwing me off sorry i stand corrected morgan fairchild uh yeah she was on flamingo road and they were trying to get her to make the transition to 
from television yeah. to movies and didn't didn't quite pull didn't quite work. But anyway, if you're a fan of the seduction, she's a newscaster who's being stalked by a psychopath and he's played by your favorite, Andrew Stevens. Uh, <laughs> oh. Yeah, Michael Sarazen is her boyfriend, uh hubby or whatever, and Vince Edwards, who used to be on Ben Casey, he's in it as as a cop. So, uh, you know, you, you've got uh, new interviews with Morgan Fairchild here and Andrew Stevens and audio commentary by producer Erwin Yablons and, you know, featurettes and all that stuff. So, hey, if you want to see Morgan Fairchild stab at a movie career, and there you go, The Seduction. And um, Warner Archive has issued a Shaft triple feature. I'm sure this is anticipate in, in anticipation of the new Shaft film coming out in July. This has all three of the original Shaft films, Shaft. Shaft's Big Score and Shaft in Africa on Blu-ray, so it's pretty mm. nice to have all those in one place. And I, wonder if dedicate, I wonder if they'll dedicate the new Shaft to John Singleton. I know, really. I was a big fan yeah. of that. I thought that was a really, really good uh, attempt at rebooting that series. Uh, I thought it was very solid. I, I always hoped he would do a, a second one. But uh, didn't didn't happen. Somebody, but at least there are they are doing a second one, which I'm glad of. But uh, anyway, so Black Moon Rising. Speaking of Tommy Lee Jones, we referenced him earlier in Eyes of Laura Mars, and this was his. Uh, this was before he became you know kind of a go-to actor, but he was trying to work his way in there. And I saw this in the theater. I remember back in '86. Yeah, it, I thought it was okay. Linda Hamilton is in it, and. Um, but I rewatched it again recently, and it didn't quite hold up. But nevertheless, Black Moon yeah. Rising with uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Linda Hamilton from 1986, Kino Lorber release. Man, uh, read, um, read. Uh, there's this book, uh, my first film. I don't know the exact name of it, but anyway, it's about ten directors talking about their first movie. Mm-hmm. And Mike Figgis is in there talking about Stormy Monday, and uh, just the hell. That Tommy Lee Jones put him through on his wow, first movie. I, I need to read that. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is very unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, I have heard that. <laughs> I have heard that. Yeah, uh, I think one of the, my favorite Tommy Lee Jones stories was they told this on the, Gil- the Gilbert podcast where. Uh, I think there was a gossip columnist who was on there as a guest, and he said that he was trying to ingratiate himself with Tommy Lee Jones at some press junket because he had heard that he was notoriously prickly, as we all know. And so he goes Mm. over, and he said, uh, well, I know his son plays uh, football in college. My son's playing uh, football at the same college. And he said, "Uh, maybe I can – you know, break down his barriers with by telling him that story. And so he goes over to him and, and, and to to do the press junket thing, and he's asking him the, the the questions. And he goes, "You know, my son. He goes to the uh, he he played uh, college football at the same uh, college as your son." And he said, "Tommy Lee Jones just looks at him and he says, and <laughs> yeah." <laughs> so that gives you. Uh, he's he's something else. And Jim Carrey tells great stories too about how he just talk about ball busting and the things he did to him on the set of that Batman movie he was in. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. But uh, yeah, he, yeah, he looked up, I could under yeah. I could I could see how the two of them would be oil and water. Oh yeah, he was no fan of Jim Carrey, and he did not he didn't buy he did not mind letting him know. So. Anyway, well, we'll move right along to 1995's Nixon, the Oliver Stone film, maybe the last 
grasp of the Oliver Stone that we came to know and love during that 10-year span or uh, from 85 to 95 when he made that incredible run of films. I think Nixon was probably the last one of that truly, truly great run. And um, this is a Kino Lorber release, and it's notable because it presents the film in two cuts, the original theatrical film, or original theatrical cut, rather, it's the biopic of Richard Nixon, of course, with Anthony Hopkins. Incredible supporting cast, too, by the way. And uh, it also features the longer extended cut, which is the original cut was 3.09, 3 hours, 9 minutes. The extended cut was 3 hours, 37 minutes. Um, but, uh, you know, it's good to have both of them in one place. Previously, it was issued on Blu-ray in just the the longer cut. So, um Anyway, so Anthony Hopkins, Nixon, uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon, rather, starring Anthony Hopkins. And the 1995 film, The Hunted, has been issued by Shout Factory. Um, of course, that stars Christopher Lambert and John Lone, and uh, directed by J.F. Lawton, the screenwriter of Pretty Woman. Worth noting for that. Hmm. So, um, and we'll move on to a couple, to another Kino Lorber release, Von Richthofen and Brown, which is. Uh, one of the few directorial efforts of Roger Corman, because he didn't direct a, uh, speaking of Roger Corman, we referenced him earlier, and he didn't direct a lot of films, and this is one of them. It's a, it's a World War II war, uh, it's a war picture, actually. And um, so I do have a review copy, haven't gotten around to it yet, but I hear it's really good. He was, he said he was always really proud of this film, but it just didn't really take off and didn't do much business. It has John Philip Law and uh, Don Stroud in it, but um, anyway, just wanted to mention that that was out there. And uh, I wonder if Roger yeah, Corman ever got really, if Roger Corman ever got really pissed off, because anytime we see we see anything of Roger Corman, he is the most congenial, grandfatherly like person. <laughs> I know, right? Everything just kind of seems to roll off of him. He just goes. I could not see him losing his temper. No, I know, and that's probably why his his output is so prolific because he just lets it roll off of him. I think he doesn't he doesn't sweat the small stuff. He's learned how to master that art, you know, in, yeah. in terms of film making films. I think that's yeah, that's probably served him well. Yeah, of course that's um, that's almost a backhanded compliment too, because you're like your movie was missing this and this and this, and you're like I don't sweat sweat the small stuff. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, he could. He could do. He he was notorious for his penny pinching. That's for sure. Um, so another Arrow release is She Devils on Wheels from 1968. It's one of those biker motorcycle films. Oh. This one star. It's uh, directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis, though, and um, oh. starring you know, a lot of actors that we probably don't know because Herschel Gordon Lewis normally cast unknowns. But um, it's about an all-female motorcycle gang called the Man Eaters. Who hold motorcycle races and terrorize the residents of a small Florida town. So if you're a Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of person, well, there you go. And we'll go through the Twilight Time releases. We have a couple of those worth mentioning. Maura Turi from uh, 1965 starring Neil Brenner and Marlon Brando. Um, that's uh, directed by Bernard Wicke. And um, it's a suspenseful World War II thriller uh, written by Daniel Teradash, shot by Conrad Hall, and the action taking place on a blockade-running freighter traveling, traveling from Yokohama to Bordeaux with a load of vital war material. 
the extras are isolated music track and theatrical trailer. So um, anyway, Marlon Brando again, turning up second time in the program, and uh, Warlock from 1959, starring Richard Widmark, 59. Henry Fonda, Anthony. Uh, 59. Uh, Richard Widmark. So we're not talking. Anthony. We're not talking about Julian Sands here. No, no, not at all. This is Richard Widmark, Henry Fonda, Anthony Quinn, Dorothy Malone, and directed by Edward Dimitrik. It's a western. Uh, you okay. know, Henry Fonda is a murderous gunslinger hired to rid a frontier town of a gang of troublemakers. I'd much rather see this warlock than the Julian Sands. Let's just <laughs> make that clear. Um, anyway, isolated music track and. Uh, the uh, the film's trailer as the extras and Bandolero from 1968. This is directed by Andrew V. McLaughlin, another western. This one with James Stewart and Dean Martin as a pair of brothers on the run from a posse led by Sheriff George Kennedy. So uh, this one has audio commentary, um, tra- trailers, and isolated music track. And then uh, the final. Uh, title from Twilight Time is uh, directed by Robert Mulligan, one of my favorite directors. The, the, he's the guy behind Summer 42 and uh, The Other, two of my all-time favorite films. And uh, this is Baby, the Rain Must Fall. Uh, he also, yeah. of course, directed To Kill a Mockingbird, but uh, produced Steve by Alan McQueen, J. Right? Uh Yes, Steve McQueen, Lee Remick, and Don Murray from 1965 and based on the... Um, the uh, the Horton Foot play, uh, writer Horton Foot, who also scripted To Kill a Mockingbird, so they were uh, collaborating for a second time. Uh, Pecula, Robert Mulligan, and and Horton Foot. So anyway, those are your Twilight Time releases. This only has a trailer on it, uh, so that's your only extra. So there you go, and, and then we'll move along to a couple other things here. That we're on May 21st. We also have, or rather, we're moving on to May the 24th. Or, let's see, no, wait a minute. Uh, May, uh, yeah, May 24th, Lust in the Dust, directed by Paul Bartel. And from Vinegar Syndrome, this is starring Tab Hunter, Divine, and Jeffrey Lewis, and Henry Silva, and Cesar Romero, he of the Orange Wedge fame. <laughs> Listeners of Gilbert Gottfried's podcast will know what we're talking about. Anyway, um, this is uh, this is this is uh, a cult film that uh, well, it's, it's it's had a pretty strong cult following over the years. But if you're a Paul Bartel fan, who Paul Bartel, of course, who also directed Eating My Yule, you'll uh, it's probably going to be up your alley. But anyway, um, just wanted to mention that. Then we move on to May 28th, and we have uh, we teased about this one earlier, Blue Velvet has finally made its way as part of the uh the Criterion collection. How about that? Yeah. And they've done a really good job here. Um they have a new 4K digital restoration. Uh they also had and they have the original 2.0 surround audio. Uh, both of them super the soundtracks were supervised by David Lynch. There's the Lost Footage, which is a 53-minute uh collection of deleted scenes and alternate takes. I think this is the most complete um, collection of the alternate takes and deleted scenes that's been released yet. And there's Blue Velvet Revisited, a feature-length meditation on the making of the movie. Uh, there's Mysteries of Love, a 
minute documentary from 2002. There's a new interview uh, from 2017 with Angelo Badalamenti, the, the uh, composer. It's a Strange World, the filming of Blue Velvet, a 2019 documentary featuring new interviews and uh, well, visits yeah. to the shooting locations and Lynch reading from room. Yeah, there you go. Same what we talked about earlier. Yep. And then you have David Lynch reading from Room to Dream, a 2018 book that he co-authored with Christine McKenna. And how about that? So, if you're a well, that's a great fan, that's a great package. That would be worthwhile getting. I mean, I, oh yeah, I, I would get I would get that just for the uh, shooting locations segment. But, oh yeah, um, such a beautiful looking movie. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, I rewatched Fire Walk with me too. There's a I have to wholeheartedly recommend the Criterion Channel streaming service okay, because not yeah. only do you get do you get their catalog of movies, but you also get the extras, so you can pull up commentary tracks and things like that. And I watched um, Fire Walk with Me again because it was playing on that channel, uh-huh. and uh, I adore Fire Walk with Me in a way that I do not adore the the Return of the series. Mm-hmm. Um. I know some people say that the return of the series was uh, a callback to the Fire Walk With Me, more in the style of Fire Walk With Me, but I didn't find that to be the case. But if if you listen to – we did a, a interview as part of our Lynch series with the – I forget who it was – the co-screenwriter of Fire Walk With Me, maybe the cinematographer. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember which one. But anyway, they were talking about how the original cut of Firewalk with Me was much, much longer, and all the stuff that was cut out was all the jokey stuff. So yeah. Firewalk with Me now now plays very uh, almost like a horror film. Sure. Um, yeah. I think I think the the series Twin Peaks: The Return is probably a lot of that jokey stuff. Yeah. Put in so that you know, and and. Uh, it, you know, and I watched that show with great relish, and there were great moments of that show. But for the most part, I I found it uh, almost uh, impossible to sit through, especially the more that Dougie subplot went on and on and on. But in the midst of all of that, I do think Lynch directed the best hour I've ever seen on television. Mm-hmm. Whatever that one episode is where the atom bomb goes off and the uh, you know, uh, yeah. So I, I still I still think about that episode about how just awe, awe inspiring it was. Yeah, that was. Uh, I think that was episode eight, I believe. Yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was unlike uh, anything else you could see on television. That's for sure. So yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, this blue velvet. Yeah, that's probably one of the picks of the month. I would say. So yeah. Yeah. For sure. And uh, you have a uh, uh, couple of Shout Factory releases here. They did a Shout Select release of Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, with Wesley Snipes, Patrick Swayze, and John Leguizamo from 1995, of course. So, uh, you know. Uh, also starring the late Chris Penn, you know. But uh, I know there are some fans of that one. And another Shout Select film is, uh, to my knowledge, never been issued on video, on, on any kind of disc format anyway. I think it was VHS, but Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton in Boom, based on the Tennessee Williams play. Yeah, it's uh, 
actually scripted by Tennessee Williams and featuring a score by John Barry. This is a new audio commentary by John Waters, of all people. And uh, The Sound of a Bomb, contextualizing Boom with author and film critic Alonzo Duraldi. And theatrical trailer and photo gallery. So, yeah, it was one of those um, Liz Taylor, Richard Burton things that they did together when they were married. And, uh, yeah, so that's... uh, how about Double Impact from 1991? That's uh, the How about Claude it? Claude Van Damme. Were the yeah they play he plays uh, brother isn't it brothers he plays in that? It's a uh, mm-hmm. MVD release from 91 and the Uncanny is a release from Severn Films from 1977 and this is about uh, several tales of supernatural horror with cats at the center of each tale. It stars Peter Cushing and Ray Milland. I remember this turning up on uh, cable occasionally when I was a kid. I saw it a long time ago, but don't remember much about it. Uh, from 2000, uh, another uh, sorry, Warner Archive release from 1965 is A Patch of Blue, which is an exceptional film starring Sidney Poitier and Shelley Winters and Elizabeth, the late Elizabeth Hartman. Uh, it's about a blind, uneducated white girl who is befriended by a black man who becomes determined to help her escape her impoverished and abusive home life. Uh, features a great score by um, uh, Jerry Goldsmith, and just just a beautiful movie. Um, could not recommend it more if you haven't seen it. And I do believe Elizabeth Hartman got her Best Supporting Actress Academy Award. Uh, unfortunately, she had a really tragic life and, and jumped out of her apartment building and plunged to her death at the age of, um, I think, 43 in 1987, so she didn't have a long mm. career. But it's a great, great, beautifully uh, made movie with a terrific performance by all involved. So Patch of Blue gets a major um, recommendation from yours truly. Uh, when a Stranger Calls Back was the, uh, the made-for-cable sequel to a When a Stranger Calls. And it reunited the director and the stars, Carol Kane and Carol and Charles Durning from the original film. It brought them back, and um, you know, it's. Uh, I was amazed when I, I tweeted out a picture of this title, and the retweets were and the the interaction I had. I think I had like forty comments or something or interactions and. Wow, it's just amazing that I thought I oh, this. Are you this sure? Is are you sure they're not getting it confused with the first one? No, they were not because they were specific. They were like, "Oh yeah, it's great to see this. Uh, it's great to see that they finally issued this. Uh, it's been so hard to find. I mean, that kind of stuff." It was, I, I, it was one of those things I just put up trying to promote it, you know. And I was shocked at the amount of interaction I had. I, I think it might have gotten the most interactions of anything I've put up there as a to promote. Wow. And I was like, "Wow, I can't believe this. This would have been the last thing I would have imagined." You know, getting uh, interaction with. But anyway, the, satis- um, the satisfaction that is only possible when a stranger tweets back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But um, anyway, another title that Twilight Time had previously released that went way out of print real quickly has now been reissued by Sony. Still Magnolias has, uh, has been reissued. Um. Yeah, and then uh, the nineteen another Criterion released the nineteen seventy seven film one sings and the other doesn't. It's a seventeen um, year old Pauline helps her struggling mother of two Suzanne procure the money for an abortion, uh, and a deep bond forms between the two, one that endures over the course of more than a decade. This is a foreign film. I uh, I want to say it's French. It's Agnes Varda. So um, mm-hmm. yeah. 
so it's uh, considered to be a, a groundbreaking piece of cinema. I, I hate to say that I haven't seen it, but I'm aware of it. Uh, but yeah, it's nice new batch of extras, new transfer, all that stuff. Another um, release from Shout Factory, or Scream Factory rather, or Shout Factory, The Alligator People from 1959, and starring Lon Chaney Jr. and Beverly Garland. Um, you know, it's a man who gets transformed into an alligator, or uh, people rather, a group of people who get transformed into <laughs> alligator-type creatures. Um, Portrait in Black is a Kino release from 1960. It's a thriller starring uh, Lana Turner, Anthony Quinn, Sandra Dee, John Saxon, and Lloyd Nolan. And uh, a pretty good one, I must admit, produced by Ross Hunter. And there's another Lana Turner, Ross Hunter production being issued by Kino, and this is one of the great um, one of the great uh, melodramas, I would say. Uh, I'm a fan of it anyway, and it's uh, got an audio commentary by our buddy Lee Gambin, who also did the audio commentary on Portrait in Black, I might add. But he uh, did commentary on both of these, and it's uh, Madame X. Uh, with, and this has John Forsyth and Ricardo Montalban, Burgess Meredith, and Care Delay. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, Interesting. It's, it's, it's very well done. Madam X, uh, By the way, when a stranger call when a stranger calls back, I, I will watch it tonight. It is, it is on Amazon Prime. Ah, well, I'm not vouching for the quality of it. I'm just saying that a lot of people were excited to. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to this. Okay. All right. Well. If this uh, is not good, I am going to blame you. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, and we have uh, the 1962 film The Golden Arrow is, an, is another Warner Archive release that stars Tab Hunter and Rosanna Podesta. And um, it's an Italian film. Genies help a bandit recover a golden arrow, which will show that he is the heir to the Sultan's kingdom. So um, I wanted to mm. throw that one out there. And, um, and The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood is a Scorpion releasing uh, title from 1980. This one stars... Uh, Martin Beswick, Chris Lemon, Adam West, R- Phil Silvers, Richard Deacon. Uh, interesting cast for a Happy Hooker film, right? But anyway, um, yeah, that's uh, that's. I think that was the third in the series, if I'm not mistaken, if memory serves me correctly. And um, and one other title that I will mention, and this is uh, one of those Sony on-demand titles, the Three Burials of uh Milkiatus Estrada. Milkiatus Estrada, and that's the third reference we'll have to Tommy Lee Jones this evening. (laughs) Uh, He directed and wrote this film, and um, um, yeah, so and he stars in it as well. So yeah, it's been a Tommy Lee Jones kind of episode, right? It's one of Uh, one of my one of my favorite movies of that year. I I I love that movie. I I haven't returned to it, but I mean, I will say this, uh, you know. Tommy Lee Jones, by all accounts, is a complete prick, but uh, that's got nothing to do with my enjoyment of him. I, he doesn't have to be a nice guy for me to appreciate that he's terrific, <laughs> a terrific talent. Yeah. Uh, so um, so I, I love Mokiatis Estrada. Yeah, me too. It is a very, very well done movie and an excellent uh, – I think that was his directorial debut, I believe, if memory serves. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And what a great one it was. Uh, he proved that he had the chops. So, yeah, uh, I may go back and uh, pick this one up and revisit it. So might be worth uh, checking out again. So, yeah, I was I was also impressed with it when I saw it originally. So, anyway, 
Well, there you go. That's your May Blu-ray titles. There's some pretty good stuff okay. in there, I would say. Uh, you know. Well, I would say Milkyatus Estrada and Blue Velvet are probably the two best titles that uh, yeah. I heard. And, uh, I heard out of that. Yeah, and a patch of blue for anybody who hasn't seen that. Yeah. I'll vouch for that one again. That's really well done. So, yeah, there you go. All right. Well, thank you, dude. I'm going to uh, lay down on the couch now and watch When a Stranger Calls Back. 